Well, good morning, LCM. Good morning. I know Pastor Wade already mentioned it, but I'm not going to let it go without mentioning it again. We're blessed to have Justin and Lynn Johnson here. You would be doing yourself a tragic disservice if you left here today without hugging those two, looking in their eyes, and seeing a fire of God that you need to catch. Come on. At times in my life when I was disregarded, disparaged, and downcast in my soul, those two grabbed me by the nape of my neck and lifted me from the dust heap. And one of the reasons that I'm here, and thus Judah is here, and the whole Stevens clan, is because of the support of the Johnsons. Amen. You owe them a debt you don't understand yet. So Judah and I asked to be able to share with you this morning. These last few months have brought some beautiful things into focus, haven't they? After over 20 years... We've identified the next step in our global mission. Have you heard of this little thing called the Balkan bow? Oh, yeah. Are we going to do it? Yeah. After decades of work, we're beginning to see a family of churches that are committed to the exact same core principles of discipleship, overt promotion of the spiritual gifts, and global conquest and missions for the glory Hallelujah. of Jesus Christ. Man, we are living something that I have dreamed about since the moment I was born again. Hallelujah. After 23 years in Texas and three decades overall laboring in the kingdom, we are beginning to see ministry couples rise Come on. to far greater heights than any of us could have imagined, and it's happening all over the world. Somebody say amen. amen. Spencer and Randy say amen. Amen. Juan and Graciela say amen. amen. Nick and Anna say amen. amen. Yeah, look, these are good days. We need to take a minute and stop and appreciate that. These are good days. Hallelujah. So in light of all of those reasons, in the extraordinary place in life that Adonai has brought us to as a household, as a people, we want to hold a family-style meeting today. It only seems right when you see the family of God prospered that you take a little time as the family to celebrate it. This morning, we will be talking to you about coins and camels. In fact, that's our title today. Today we have one goal, and that is to renew, to refresh, and revitalize many truths that you have already accepted. Now in this family-style meeting, we will not be making an effort that is particularly polished or working to amaze you with homiletics. Instead, our goal is to achieve the objective of renewing, refreshing, and revitalizing truths that this house has already accepted. It's not that we can't. It's just that we're not. <laughs> it is necessary in this house that we do this today because the stakes are high. The task ahead of us is large. And the time to complete this task 
is short. So this morning, we're going to get straight into the Scripture. We will be working through the law, prophets, and writings in the Older and Newer Testament. But we will be doing it in reverse order this morning. So we're going to begin in the New Testament writings. Come on, we're going to back that thing up. It's going to be a good day. But don't you dare think that that means that we're going to go easy on you. No. Do you want to be perfected in Christ? Then that's what we'll aim at. We're in the New Testament writings to start with. We're going to pick up in 2 Corinthians 11 and beginning in verse 1. Somebody say there out of tradition if nothing else. I'll be reading from the ESV, so if you need an interpreter, grab somebody that understands foreign languages. Man, I relate to this first line. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Saints, while you're reflecting on this passage, it's too easy to hear this and then just keep reading through the text. Because this is a family meeting, we want to take a minute to examine what Paul is actually talking about. In fact, you've heard it before. This morning, we want to remind you that they are speaking of a process of marriage, one that they are currently in the middle of, one that Paul is reminding the Corinthian church about. We're going to outline the steps with you just to help you understand what is at stake in this passage. As Judah gets ready to pull this slide up, understand that that little nursery rhyme that you girls sang when you were little, first comes love, then comes marriage. Your mama lied to you. That is not the way this process works at all. We're going to work through the biblical process with you so that we can put into context Paul's statement for you. Because Paul is warning us in 2 Corinthians 11 that we are in the middle of a marriage process. Every step is as serious as every other step. And the verse we didn't read to you is he was concerned for a spirit-filled church that they were being led astray from their sincere devotion to Christ and being deceived exactly as Eve had been. Have I sobered your attention yet? So somebody say they were in the middle of the process. Sound booth, we're going to leave this slide on the screen while we begin to cover a little of what the process looks like. So you can see Shidukin. This is the preliminary arrangements to the legal betrothal. This is the time frame prior to the actual engagement. Ashad Khan is the man who would seek both parties out, who would examine their character, who would work to broker a marriage that would produce godly offspring. Now, as he was looking at the parties that would be involved, playing a kind of matchmaker, yeah. he would be writing something called a ketubah, which is a contract 
a legal agreement between the two parties, a description of how a bride and a groom would relate to each other in marriage in advance. Now, remind you, this is prior to getting engaged. There was a clear understanding if they did enter into betrothal, what would be expected. A part of this process was a searching of heart long before the engagement. Involved things like a mikvah, which is a baptism, a cleansing away of the old life, a preparation for the next stage in the process. This is all before engagement ever began. Much analogous to Paul preaching in Corinth, speaking about a great king before they made a commitment to follow him, before they entered into engagement. Do you have it? It's not Shaka Khan, it's Shad Khan. And this is something like the male version of a Yenta. Yeah, the godly version. His job was to proclaim the possibility of a union with a groom, to broker a legal contract that both parties would be held to, and it had penalties in it as well as rewards. The situation is so serious in the Shidduchan that it concludes with a baptism. A baptism that prepares you for the lifetime of commitment that you are now entering in. Which brings us to the next stage, the erusion stage. Erusion is simply a Hebrew word that means betrothal. Sometimes you will see this also called the kiddushin, just so that you get as many Hebrew words that you won't remember as possible. The reason that I'm bringing that up is because while erosion refers to betrothal, it's almost equally called the kiddushin, which means sanctification or setting apart. Now, those of you that have some spiritual discernment are already seeing how this process works. To consider to follow Christ, to hear the kingdom message, it's a serious thing. You need to examine the contract. You need to look at the word of God that is the ketubah. And on the day that you are baptized, you are moving into betrothal with the king of the universe. Which, of course, is accompanied by a sanctification and a setting apart. That's not a single moment. It's a single decision followed by thousands of decisions. The erosion ceremony was actually held under a hopa. Now, I know that you're used to seeing Jewish weddings done under a hopa. I know that you're familiar with that imagery. What you may not have known is there's two hopas involved. The first one is at the erosion period. It's at the betrothal period. They take their vows of betrothal under a hopa to symbolize their new household that would be formed. This is very much like what God did at Sinai for Israel. We often are sloppy in our description. We say that God married Israel at Sinai. He didn't really. He betrothed them. But a betrothal carries the same weight yes. as marriage. And it's a promise that the groom will keep. And he will marry the same people that he betrothed himself to. During this period, they leave the Hopa, and the groom goes back to his father's house. And we won't teach all that because some of you know it. But it's an insula. 
It's a multi-family dwelling. And that groom begins to build onto his father's house a new section of the home that is for he and the family that he will raise. The bride leaves the hopa, walks to her father's house, and begins immediately working on her wedding dress. Now, ladies, I know you might have looked at wedding dresses your whole life. You probably got a little picture tucked away. It's a great question whether you'll fit into it on that day, but it's a good goal. You're thinking of buying one. They didn't. They made them. Imagine doing that by hand. Imagine that you cannot just go to Hancock Fabrics and pick up spools of thread. For both the bride and groom, this erosion period, this betrothal period, was an extended time of introspection and contemplation. They were in every action focused on readying themselves to complete the mission. Not just to consummate the marriage, but to have a marriage worth consummating. Because he will only accept her if she bears his likeness. And she will only accept him if he is worth following. Come on. And they are working at that the entire time period. And they don't know how long it'll be. So they catch the flow here. During the Shidokin, this is the preliminary preparation for a new stage in life. One that would be completed with a mikvah, a public baptism showing something has changed inside of me. And I am committing to a new direction. During the erosion period would be the time frame of preparation involved in preparing for the new life. Through physical labor, personal introspection, and the expectation of going from singleness into Holy Covenant. Which brings us to the Nisween, which is the actual marriage. It actually literally means to carry. The idea is that the bride cannot bring herself into this covenant, but it must be the groom who carries her into it. Wait, wait, wait. Did y'all catch that? She cannot enter into the marriage under her own strength or power. She does have to be willing she does have to work at this every day. But he will physically carry her into the covenant. So there's a beautiful symmetry going on here. While she is unable to bring herself into the covenant, she does have to be ready for him to carry her. The arrival of the groom and the wedding party was a surprise. It was not a scheduled date. You didn't have an invitation six months out that you RSVP'd to. Save the date, y'all. She had to spend every day in expectation, anticipation, wondering when her groom would come to carry her into a new life. Now, not even the groom had the right to pick the date. Only one person had the right, and that was the father of the groom. He was the one who knew the day and the hour. He was the one who was watching their preparation, who understood when they would be ready to be united. Now, something extraordinary happened on that day. That day that no one knew the day or hour. They knew exactly when the groom was coming when he set out because they sounded shofars and a loud blast, signifying to all who are around, this groom is now coming for his bride. So once he began his march upon his return, coming for his bride, 
everyone heard it. And then they would meet together for a second time under the hopa, under the covering and commands of God, making good on the original promises that they had made at his first arrival. Then they would do something extraordinary. They would feast together. They would have wine. They would have meat. They would have a time of celebration because of what God had cultivated. And finally, the groom and the bride would consummate the marriage that they had been preparing for after all of this time. I want you to feel the weight and the import for a minute of these words again, knowing what you now know. It's not uncommon for young couples like Rob and Miranda to be solely focused on the consummating part. And we're glad. That's how we get children. But the process itself is every bit as important as what it leads up to. Amen. Amen. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 3. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Paulus the Shad Khan there, he arranged this relationship. And he has a concern. Since I betrothed you to one husband, after he went through the Shidukin process, he is placing the church at Corinth in the erosion or betrothal place, and he is concerned about their commitment. For I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. If the church at Corinth needed to be warned, church, answer me honestly. Do you need to be warned about the seriousness of this? Now that we have an idea of the biblical marriage process that Paul is expounding on, women who move to the New Testament prophet with you and examine the culmination, the target, the aim of all of the ages in the entire biblical narrative. I'm going to pick up in Revelation 21 and read to you verses 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So you normally only hear this passage at funerals. And we only focus on the he will wipe away every tear part. As much comfort as I hope that brings to people, and for some of them it's false comfort, I want you to notice that it is a prepared bride, a prepared, beautifully adorned bride, one that was particularly prepared for her husband, that this is true of. Church, are you preparing yourself to be joined to your husband? When you consider his 
holiness, his perfection, and that you are to become one flesh with him. Do you think maybe you have some work to do? This should be on our mind every day of our lives, not the day before the wedding. Come on. And you don't know when the day of the wedding will come, which means you have to prepare every day like it were your last opportunity. We're in a time of preparation and anticipation because we desire to be united to our groom. Would anybody in here like to raise their hand and say, I think Jesus Christ deserves a whore for a wife? Does your preparation show that you're trying to give him something more than a whore for a wife? He deserves your unadulterated commitment. Come on. He deserves a pure devotion. Someone that spent every day of their lives preparing for this moment with no other interest. We are to make ourselves ready, and the time is now. Saints, at the risk of stating the obvious for some, but in the attempt to ensure that all understand, you are not married to Christ. You are betrothed to him. You've stood under his commands and made a vow. You are contractually obligated to prepare yourself for that day. But you have not arrived at the wedding day that is Revelation 21. We are in a time frame of fearful and wonderful expectation. You are preparing to be wed to the perfect Christ. See, many a young woman has thought that her young groom was nearly perfect in kind of a fanciful, oblivious way. The reality is we're preparing to meet a young groom, an everlasting king, one who will never go away and has no flaw and no unholiness inside of him. If that that doesn't make your knees shake together, I don't know what would. That is both a wonderful thing, and if you have any awareness of what that actually looks like, it should be a fearful thing. See, to be wed to one who is perfect means that any wickedness that is found in you, you are trying to wed to the perfect one. And that is not something that he will accept. In this house this morning, we want to think about the kind of personal housekeeping that we would do, that we must do, if you knew that you were being prepared for union into one flesh with a holy God, one who burns with jealousy, one who burns with everlasting fire and no wickedness is found within. The making of the dress in biblical times often took an entire year. Mistakes were made in the process. They were made along the way, and they were not fatal in this preparation as long as they were faithfully corrected. Oh, come on, somebody. But the bride could not show up to meet the king and have half of her dress tarnished or stained because it was simply going to be forgiven. She had to be faithful to correct the errors so that her works, her dress, were in proper accord before meeting the groom. Saints, we want to ask you today, do you need to mend your deeds? Have you moved on from areas of your garment that were never faithfully corrected so that you are appropriately adorned instead of ashamed on that day? 
See, this delay, this time frame, the little space we have between the culmination of that day, the culmination of the ages, well, it's meant to build joy and anticipation. It's meant to build excitement and also allow for a time frame of repentance, correction, so that we can stand before him holy and in righteous standing. Do you feel how the seriousness and the heaviness has settled on you already? We're reminding you of what you are already committed to. This is not new news. It's joy and anticipation when you're doing the work. But if you're standing back thinking, you know, I don't even know whether it's worth bringing up this little area. Well, do you want to stand before the whole world with a wedding dress that has a giant stain on it? Look your groom in the eye and say, I really just didn't take you seriously enough to get this right. If you're standing back going, I really regret that I made myself accountable to my team. Because now they're going to make me get it right. You're listening to me, Cody? Then what we're trying to do is save your life on that day. And if you will not be corrected now, you will be excluded from the ceremony on that day. How many of you want to correct it now? I do. Well... Then you start to get joyful every time you find a button undone or a stitch that's not right because you can retrace those steps, go back through it, and you have a chance to fix it so that you will be blameless and perfect on that day. Oh, that's good news. In fact, that's why the gospel begins with the words repent. And that's why it's called good news because you can repent. Let's look at how Revelation goes on to describe the attitude of the bride. Revelation 22, 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Notice that she is beckoning him. That's because she's ready. Come on. Come and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The voice of the bride is one who has made herself ready. It's not as if you could be the bride and stand there with a giant hole in your dress. You're missing something. That's no gospel at all. That's what the Baptists preach and they're wrong. You are not the bride if you don't make yourself ready. So the voice of the true bride is always saying, come, I'm making myself ready. I want to meet you now. Your eternal security, if there were such a thing, is your daily repentance and desire to prepare for him so that your heart is longing for him to carry you into what you could not do on your own. Come on. Nisween, carry. The voice of the bride is one who desires not only herself, but it's not a singular bride. It's a bride made up of many members. And so she's desiring others to come and prepare with her. Come and drink of the water. Come Come and do what I'm doing. He will marry us as a unit. But he will not marry a member that will not properly prepare. The bride is only made up of those who are being perfected. Those who are being ready 
to share in the nature of a groom who, get this, is perfect. How serious is that? See, this idea that I can just agree to a few principles, and I mean, it's good because when I was eight, I did this. No, no. You are diminishing your groom. He is perfect. How hard ought we to work to be perfected? While you're contemplating how hard we ought to work, I'm going to read to you verse 18, and you're going to hear the voice of the groom on the subject. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Saints, you need to understand the words of the book or the ketubah. If you add to them your own preferences, add to them your own alleviation, or if you take away from one single command, he says, I'll take away your place in the tree of life. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Before I read the rest of the verse, how you interpret that, whether it is a wonderful or a fearful thing, really depends upon whether or not you've honored the ketubah. Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace, the power over sin of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Saints, do you hear the resounding voice of the groom in these verses? He is testifying to what his bride has already said, the one who made herself ready. And he's affirming she has kept the words of this prophecy. And now he's warning everyone else that adherence to the ketubah is the only way to make yourself ready to meet with him. He's warning that his arrival is soon, that it is imminent, and you don't know when it's going to happen, but it will come like fire. The true bride does make herself ready, and she joyfully anticipates the arrival and judgment that comes with the groom. Saints, if Jesus were entering the room this morning and examining you, examining your conduct over the last week, would he find you ready? Would you be joyful to see him? Or would you be fearful of the condition of your wedding dress? Because you didn't spend your erosion period well. Saints, we're in the erosion period now. Every one of you who's come in here, you are betrothed to Christ. You agreed to keep his commands. And it is time that we get it right prior to his arrival. Can you tell that we are trying to get your attention? We have great things before us. But they'll just be dreams that don't come to pass if you don't take this seriously. Don't think you'll be able to stand at the altar of the ages with a little burlap covering some nasty stain. You wouldn't want that at your wedding, and he won't accept it at his. Leave no stone unturned. Ask God to search you so that you would be absolutely certain that if he walked through these doors at some point during this message... That you would feel nothing except excitement. And that would not be based on self-deception. It would be based on the level of interaction you had had with his own spirit preparing you for that moment. To say, well, I just wasn't very conscious of the Lord this week. Then you are unprepared and not preparing yourself as a bride. 
to avoid accountability and to hide sin, well, not only are you not a bride, you're a whore. We have to get this straight, church. Hey, let's move to the New Testament law. Jesus told many encouraging parables. Somebody say encouraging. Encouraging. They encouraged us and warned us about the erosion or betrothal period. I want to share one of them with you. It's been one of my favorites for years. This is Luke 15, verse 8. Y'all still with me? I don't feel bad about making you somber. But I am going to try to pick things up a little bit. As long as you don't mistake that for not needing to get yourself right. I have a great fear as a pastor that there are some sitting among us that believe that you're okay because you're sitting next to people who are preparing. But you yourself are not. And will be one of those on that day that says, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? And he says, get away from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. I have a fear that those people are sitting in this room. But you get to choose. Amen. Let's talk Luke 15, 8. Or what woman having 10 silver coins? 10. 10. If she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Church, you may be surprised to find out that this parable has absolutely nothing to do with the intrinsic value of a silver coin. It has everything to do with what the value of all ten coins together represent because they came from the groom. And they are given to the bride during the shidukin process at the beginning of the engagement. If the bride lost even one of the ten coins... It was indicative of her losing sight of one of the groom's commands. That's why there's ten. Saints, we have a slide for you on ten coins as an engagement ring. You can read along with me. During the Shudokin, a price is specified through the Ketubah. This contract specifies the conditions and provisions for the upcoming wedding. For both bride and groom... In biblical times, part of the bride's dowry might include a headband of coins that were worn during the ceremony. Since this headband of coins represented part of the marriage contract, the loss of any of these coins would cause great worry. Saints, what you need to understand is that when Jesus spoke of a bridal headband comprised of ten coins, this was clear and unmistakable reference to the Torah of God, which begins with Ten Commandments. As a bride betrothed to Christ, our love and implementation of the word of God, it is everything to the erosion period. It is what you would think of as an engagement ring. The groom is coming to consummate his marriage with a bride that has become like him, has carried his commandments. There is no such thing as a marriage between him and whorish behavior that ignores or loses even one of the coins. There is no such thing as a marriage between him and one who longs for the world. The entire point of the parable is to alarm that sinful behavior causes in the erosion period. 
because it is a threat to the very marriage itself, which is why Jesus then immediately parallels it to when one sinner repents, when you find a coin, because it is sin to not have the coin because it is not having the command of God. Saints, in this room, you are presently engaged. You are betrothed. You have a ketubah. You have commands from him. But you have not arrived at the ceremony. And whether you arrive with the coins is still in question. So the point of the parable is alarm. But it's not the only point of the parable. We're not talking about breaking a coin. We're talking about losing a coin. And then rejoicing when you found it again. So when you think about that, it's parallel to a sinner... Someone who is sinning, don't think of a sinner as somebody different than you. Someone who is sinning that repents. And all of heaven rejoices because that person is now like a bride preparing herself for the culmination of the ages. She's preparing herself for that moment when you become one flesh with a holy God. Saints, our plans are big. The challenge before us is one that requires supernatural help. Somebody say, help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. We must each be so diligent not to lose sight of the commands of our groom. We're not talking about making a mistake. We're talking about starting to disregard one of the vital commands so that you have lost sight of it and cannot find it again. If you're sitting in here today, then there is still time. Notice what the woman did. She lit the menorah of God within her house. She brought the light into her house to search it. She began to clean and sweep her house. It turns out that you might not be able to find a command without turning away from things that you know are wrong. She swept and cleaned her house. You can light the lamp of God and you can sweep and clean your house and find a coin again. Jesus is returning for a bride that has given her whole life to being perfected. He won't accept anything less and so you can't accept anything less. Saints, did you hear him say that the parable is about a lost coin? Not one who was destroyed. Thanks, this ought to bring hope and sobering reality all at once. See, if you're able to search your heart, if you're able to interact with the Holy God and His Word and recognize where you're missing a coin, well, then there's hope because you can light a lamp and go look for it. Yes! Yes! What you cannot do is ignore the fact that a coin might be missing. What you cannot do is try not to think about it. Try not to ask him about it. Try to evade other men asking you about the condition of your coins. See, if you can recognize I am missing some of the commands he gave me today, then there is hope. There's another part of this passage that we have to point out before we move on. Yeah, we're going to do it. See, a friend, a family member... Somebody might be able to help point out, hey, you're being faithless, missing your coins. What your friends and family cannot do is look for the coin for you. She, the bride, 
is the one who has the responsibility to find what she lost, not anyone else. Sure, they're all rooting for her. When she finds it, they celebrate like the angels in heaven. But she herself must find the coin. No one else can force you to find the coin. All of the restriction or encouragement in the world will not give you the ability to pick it up. Only the desire to find it so badly that you will light the menorah of God. Let it burn and search every area of your house. See, we stand and bear witness to the fact that you are making yourself ready in this house. We want to tell you today that our God and his holy fire will help you be ready. But it starts with you taking the responsibility. I must find the coin and it's not anyone else's job to do it, Leslie. It is mine. We'll rejoice with you when you pick up your coin. We'll encourage you. You missed some dirt over there. If you get rid of the dirt, you might find a coin laying under it. But we cannot pick up the coin for you. That is your job. That is your honor. That is you showing that you are making yourself ready. Look, I don't have time to expand further on the idea of the ketubah and the wedding contract, and the witnesses, and the things that Judah has just talked about. But I can tell you that the ketubah was usually signed by seven people. I can tell you that the leader who administrates the ceremony is the first signature. Then you have a father of a groom, a mother of a groom, a father of a bride, a mother of a bride, then the groom himself, and then the bride for seven signatures that were all equally committed to the bride preparing herself for this moment. The process of making herself ready and wearing all ten coins was the sole responsibility of the bride-to-be. However, seven other people were there to remind her, to help her, to testify for her that she was, in fact, making herself ready. Man, it's a good day when we can look and go, wow, look at how Ray and Ruby have made themselves ready. Come on. They dropped a coin or two, but they found them every time. They've polished them. They've shined them. They're wearing them. This is why Paul phrased 2 Corinthians 11 the way that he did. And it's why Revelation features a seven-sealed document. This is all wedding language, and Paul is using it because it's daily in their life. Hey, you know what? You need all ten coins. You need all ten coins. They're your adornment. They're the engagement ring of the day. Come on. Now that we've seen the significance of the coins and the prophets' writings and law of the Newer Testament, let's move to the writings of the Older Testament and reacquaint with the target for every bride to be. Hey, we're halfway through this message in 40 minutes. This is a blazing pace. Record time. So we're going to pick up in Psalm 45 in the 10th verse. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. 
Saints, this is such a beautiful thing because it is our goal, our target, what the Bible itself aims us at as a bride. As the bride, the first thing that we do is we forget our previous household. We forget our previous way of doing things. We forget all of our older wayward habits and everything that is entailed with them. Hey, do we got husbands in here? Look at your girl. Look at her right now. Say, forget your daddy's house. Daddy's house. See, I just made all the husbands happy. We're already lifting things. As the bride. Who's your daddy now, Jim? (laughs) Get it, Lincoln. He's looking forward to that day. Is there any bride in the room, any wife that wants to be undesirable to your husband? No, we have pretty women in this church because they honor their commands. See, the way the bride makes herself desirable to the king, to the groom, is by loving his word above everything else, calling him Lord and obeying him beyond anything else. See, it's almost like the New Testament epistles describe the wives of the patriarchs as radiant and beautiful. Because they referred to Abraham as Lord and did not give way to fear. See, honoring the commands, holding on to your coins, is what makes you attractive to King Jesus. As the bride, this behavior, well, it makes us a witness to the people of Tyre. It makes us a witness to the world that is around. The lost will actually come to know our groom, King Jesus. Through the behavior of his bride shining forth. Come on, somebody say that's good. good. Girls, if you're a little bit fluffy, a little bit chunky, you carry out those commands and you'll be P-H-A-T fat. Okay? This will make you thick. It'll turn you right into a brick house. The woman that honors God rightly, the bride who honors God rightly, Becomes attractive to not only her groom, but the people of the world start to go, hey, I, I, I want that kind of makeover. And let's pick up in verse 13. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Look, as you engage with this, and we are trying to make you laugh a little bit, because I think we've already made a few of you cry, and if we haven't cracked the hard hearts in this room yet, let me just say you need to be fearful of the fire of hell. If we hadn't got your attention yet, you might be damned. You need to beg God for a chance to repent. But for the rest of you... When you as the bride sincerely work on your wedding dress. Come on. And it's a big task because it's not actually a dress. You hear me, Tom? We're not actually going to make a dress. We're talking about your behavior. It ends up interwoven with gold and divinity. See, God blesses the work on your behavior and he weaves into you his divine nature. You're all seen in his eyes wearing a many-colored robe. Where have you heard that? Joseph. Joseph. 
You are seen as a bride being favored by a father, a many-colored robe. A bride favored and destined to rule the same way Joseph was favored and destined to rule. That's what the preparation process is for. This is all before the actual ceremony. This is while she is still being led to the king. Come on, somebody. Led to the king. When the bride knows that her behavior is interwoven with gold, when she knows that she has the approval of her groom because she is marked by unmistakable joy and gladness, that kind of bride says, come, come quickly, come. She's not scared to meet him because she's prepared to be led to him and him meet her in that process. Oh, my goodness. Does joy and gladness mark you in unmistakable ways? Because it's unfitting for a bride to be anything else. Light your lamp. Somebody say, I'm going to light my lamp. I'm going to light my lamp. Sweep your house. Somebody say, I'm going to sweep my house. Find what you have lost. You can start off with all ten coins and joy and zeal and be setting the world on fire and the cares and worries of the world or weeds growing up or rocks in your soil cause you to lose a coin and you have traveled some distance and don't even know where you lost it. Light the lamp. Sweep the house. Find the coin. Saints, are you all ready to get to the point? I mean, there are probably only two men in the one association who can preach for 50 minutes without getting to the point. But it happens to be in verse 16 and 17. And you may notice the point has nothing to do with you and I. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. Wait, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the bride, saints. He's speaking to the bride. Saints, all of this work, all of this effort, this radiant procession of the bride being led to the king comes to one central point. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Saints, the point of this whole process, the point of the marriage ceremony itself, well, is that the bride properly prepares herself to produce sons that are better than her own fathers. Abby, I would think that this would be of particular interest to you. Because the reason that you've been prepared since you were born was to produce sons that are better than your fathers. That's what Psalm 45 is teaching. The same's true for you, Sydney. You were born to produce sons better than your daddy. And we're not going to lower the bar to help you do it. We're going to polish these pillars that adorn the temple of God. So that it becomes easy for you. This is the point of the marriage ceremony. That you produce sons better than the bride's father. Hallelujah. 
Now that you're beginning to get the idea, take it out of the context of a young woman in the room and put yourself as the bride of Christ. Your preparation should produce sons that are better than the fathers that have gone before you. Even those of you who have righteous fathers, this is what it means to magnify through the generations. Hasn't then this essentially been what God is speaking to us through many means over and over again this entire year? See, this is what our work as the bride is aimed at. This is what we're aiming for as a body and as a one association. But this can only be done if we take our preparation period seriously. Verse 17 promises you that the name of the true bride of Christ, well, it will be remembered in all generations. Almost as if the deeds will never pass away in eternity. You, church, are being prepared to become one flesh with a holy, perfect groom in whom no wickedness is found. If you take his name seriously, then you will be remembered forever along with him. Your marriage to him is about perpetual ministry that is raising up sons that can carry that kind of name, the name of a holy God, into eternity. If we had the time to do it, we would describe the millennial reign where you've become one with Christ and you are in fact not just declared to be but in reality a priestly nation and your name along with his name, in fact he gives you a new name, is remembered for eternity. See, we've sold ourselves too short about what this process is supposed to produce. And it is going to produce this. Like I, I'm starting to get excited. We're 50 minutes in. I feel good and warmed up. I want to go to 1 Samuel 25 with you. As we do this, we're going to review one of our most cherished teachings. But I'm going to let all of you new folks and remind some of you older folks know how this process began. Like, how did this revelation come about? 1 Samuel 25. And by the way, since we've been working backwards through the writings, the prophets, the law, the writings, and now we're in the Old Testament prophets, you know we're coming to a point soon. 1 Samuel 25, verse 1. Now Samuel died. That's not the point. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. Which, I, that's also not the point. But I can't picture a tombstone in his living room. So, then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. I want you to catch right off the bat. The Bible is always to do with a groom that is finding a bride in the desert. You know what 1 Samuel 25 is about. You know he's going to meet a girl named Abigail. But he's in the desert when he does it. Just like Israel was in the desert when he brought his word to them. Kings are made in the desert and brides are made in the desert. David's a prototype for Jesus. You know that the setting of this chapter gives us Abigail traits. You know that our teaching... Is that you instill in your wife her identity through the use of positive affirmation found in his word. Do you all know that? Yes. Some of you have cards in your pocket, that kind of thing. Well, that was unenthusiastic. Yes. This whole biblical narrative 
is summed up in this chapter. The Bible is about a groom who finds a bride in the desert. He frees her from the foolishness that she was bound to and takes her to be his own. But what caught my attention about this and what brought me to the original revelation that birthed our marriage teaching was the behavior of Abigail. Because she couldn't do this on her own, but man, does she give a good effort. And David fell in love with the effort that she gave. I want to read you verse 2, and then we'll get into that. And there was a man of Manoan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep at Carmel. Now the name of this man was Nabal. And the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing a sheep. So David sent ten young men. Ten. Ten. Like ten coins. Like ten coins. And David said to the young man, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. We're not going to reteach this chapter. This whole church knows this chapter. And if you don't, well, you probably have not been preparing like a bride. But it features the groom in the desert. It features a beautiful and discerning bride-to-be. The precursor to their meeting was the sending of ten servants that would arrange everything. It's not hard to stretch and see ten coins and ten servants as ten commands. I was reading this, well, 17 years ago, almost 18, because you have to include a gestation period. My little girl had not yet actually been born. And to be honest, I had always hated the name Abigail because a fat redhead knocked out a tooth early in my life, and her name was Abigail. But I was reading this and realizing... The extent to which our behavior, rushing to do what is good, rushing to bow before a God-ordained man, rushing to make wrongs right, rushing to put yourself out there in danger, was beautiful to our king. And Abigail became the idyllic name for me. My wife wanted to name our little girl Faith. I told her no. Faith. Faith's a beautiful word. I think of an aging country singer. <laughs> I knew in reading this chapter that if we were having a little girl, we would raise her for a singular purpose. That she would be raised to be joined to a godly groom and produce sons that were better than her father. I knew that the name, my father's joy, would only be complete if I did my work with her, helping her to prepare for that moment. You may not realize it, but when you look at your wife and you quote Abigail traits, you're actually commemorating an event that I had between me and my God because I didn't know what to do with a daughter being born. 
And he told me to name her Abigail and raise her in this way. That little girl sitting on the front row is the reason that the one association has Abigail traits. Take that in for a minute. The reason that we named our very first lesson in marriage counseling this is because our church was in trouble. Husbands didn't know how to pastor their wives. Wives had no idea what they were supposed to be as a wife. And as I sought the Lord to know what to do with a daughter that he was giving me, still in my wife's womb, Abigail became the example. And I've learned more every year that I've raised her. And you've all benefited from it. These young men in the story are the way that you get Abigail behavior. What she is blessed by is her interaction with ten young men. That's what she is blessed by. For most of the story, she hasn't even met David. She just knows a meeting is coming. She is interacting with the servants or the commands of God. You know the story progresses. I'm not going to waste time on those who do not want to repent. Verse 38 says, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. The unequivocal import from the passage was that Nabal, the fool, the fleshly one, was an inappropriate pairing for Abigail. There's no coincidence in the number of days before the judgment of Nabal. And his treatment of the ten servants of the groom or David. If a groom comes knocking on your door, daddy, and his name is Nabal, shut the door. <laughs> but the same is true for you as the bride of Christ. When Nabal comes knocking, shut the door. You ready to move to verse 39? When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. Since the death of Nabal, man, what a wonderful thing it was. It was the death of Nabal, the ending of his life, that actually freed Abigail to become the wife of David. This reads exactly as Romans 7 does. That your death to sin frees you to be the bride of Jesus as the groom. Yes. What a good thing. Verse 40. When the servants... Where have you heard that earlier? When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, Ten of them. They said to her, David has sent us to take you to, you to him as his wife. Saints, we're repeating this because we hope that you're catching it. The ten servants are the means by which Abigail was brought to David. Saints, this is the erosion period. Very much like the ten coins that are cherished and worn as a crown but are necessary to reach the king. It was Abigail's treatment of David's ten servants that prepared her, that clothed her in behavior that was worthy to become the bride of the king. 
Thanks. We want to tell you this morning that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You charismatics need to get out of some kind of spiritual understanding that you won't be able to prophesy or see what God is doing in the moment. Without holiness, you will not see your groom in the age to come. He will cast you away. Your preparation time is designed by the groom. Somebody say he designed it. He designed it. Somebody say he gave it. He gave it. Your groom has designed and given you preparation time so that you can honor the ten servants, so that you can cultivate the ten coins, so that you can put his word above everything else, making you ready. It's a gift from your groom to you to ensure you have what you need. This is what it means to prepare to join one flesh with the perfect and holy groom of God. Let's read verse 41. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Saints, there's so much beauty in this that we don't have time to comment on. But you should notice, we didn't read it earlier, but for your own enrichment, this is not the first time that Abigail bows when she meets David. In fact, the first time she had an interaction with the king, she bowed with her face to the ground. And now on the day, so after, day. after the beginning of the betrothal period, on the Nisween, the marriage moment, you know what she does again because she is prepared for it? She bows before the king. From the beginning of this process to the culmination of the ages, we are to bow in reverence. We are to wash the feet of the servants of our king. We are to bow ourselves to the will of God, to his commands, to the words of the very groom himself. There is no other way to marry the king. Let's read verse 42. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey. And her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Saints, there's an astounding truth that you need to grasp this morning. Abigail and those attending her went to David. No one who is a true bride will ever go see the king alone. True brides inspire others to go meet the king. True brides that have radiant actions that have a dress that came from God. Well, God will cause them to be accompanied by others who want to wholeheartedly seek the king in the same manner. See, all of these accompanied the ten servants, the commands of God to the union of the king. In fact, it is what carried them to see the king. Anybody in here got a favorite movie? Raise your hand if you have a favorite movie. Was that favorite movie less than an hour long? Then surely we can hold your attention span for one more scripture, right? Brides produce sons better than their fathers. Brides never go to join their groom alone. Brides have perfected wedding dresses. Think through those applications for a moment. This means that you've spent your life preparing for your union with Messiah. This means that you have invited others into that and they go with you. That'll make you wonder whether it's even possible to be a Christian and not be quite that serious about holiness and never have produced real disciples. 
brides don't go alone to meet their groom in the scripture. Now that we've covered the Newer Testament writings, the Newer Testament prophets, the Newer Testament law, now that we've looked into the Older Testament writings, the Older Testament prophets, let's proceed to a familiar story with Isaac and Rebecca, and we're going to show you something you haven't seen in it. So shake the dust off for a second. That was a reference to last week's message. Not that thing you and I say sometimes. When you turn to Genesis 24, you already know that Abraham, the father, sent Eleazar, God the helper. You all know that, right? To get a bride for Isaac, the promised son. You're familiar with that biblical imagery already, right? You already know that Rebecca means the irresistible or ensnaring one. Come on. And that she distinguished herself by watering how many camels? Ten. Ten camels. Just like Abigail cared for the ten servants of David. Just like the proper bride in Luke 15 found all ten coins. We want to pick up in the story when the bride's family is blessing her. The bride's family is supposed to bless the bride. Now that may not be what you've experienced in Christ. (laughs) You may not have been blessed by your natural family members as you were being led to the king. All that did was show you they're not actually your family. The genuine family blesses a bride when she goes to meet the king, her groom. Genesis 24, verse 58. Yeah, we're going to back that thing up. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. See, the Shad Khan arranges the Ketubah. This is like the Apostle Paul introducing you to the word of God. It is only a willing bride that can enter into the Shidukin ceremony under Ahopa. She has to answer the question after knowing what the Ketubah is, I will go with that man. And she does have to go. She has to leave her father's house. She has to leave the thing she's been involved in. And she has to be what he is. You feeling me, church? It's not enough that she's simply willing to enter the erosion process of betrothal and make herself ready. It's not enough that she's willing to prepare herself in the commands and deeds of the groom right up to the day of marriage. That's not enough. You probably didn't realize this, but this is why engagement is public and requires the potential bride to commit to the whole process. It's why she's given a token, which in our time is an engagement ring, To remind her that this process must be completed. It's not enough to be willing to do those things. All of you have professed that you're willing. That's why you're here. They must actually be done. You have to follow through on it. The betrothal process is a time of testing to see whether you just interviewed well. Or whether the person that shows up at the altar actually did what they promised to do. It's 
why Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. He was concerned that they weren't keeping their promise and he was responsible for having arranged the meeting. Do you all understand 2 Corinthians 11 a little better? You know, it's not a mistake that this past Tuesday we were in Acts chapter 5. And the astounding import from the passage is that the vow to give all of your property, all of yourself, is not the same thing as doing it. As my father just said, that is why Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. A radically spirit-filled, word-centric church that was being discipled by none other than the Apostle Paul himself. And Apollos. Which struggling to make good on the vows that they had made. So I'm sure that this has no bearing on us today. If the bride is truly willing, she's committed to actually give her life to the groom and prove it with her actions, not just her words. Well, then her family sends her away to the groom. Away. She is not their family anymore. She is his bride in waiting. Forget your father's house. Forget it. Verse 59. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. You notice she doesn't go alone? They always go in groups. Girls, when they get married, the reason that you have a wedding party is because they're witnesses of that event and they are going to. Verse 60 is the blessing. Somebody say, and they. And they. The they here is the family who's recognizing that Rebecca's following up on commitment and putting into action of this vow. It means that Rebecca is no longer theirs. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sisters, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him, your husband. No, y'all didn't get it. If you understood what we were saying, you wouldn't be sitting there like a monkey staring at a computer with gnats and flies circulating around your open mouths. The blessing of her family who sent her away was that the bride would be multiplied thousands and tens of thousands of times over and produce offspring that destroyed the enemies of the man she was marrying. Did you start to get it that time? See, this is what we are aiming at. Building brides and families that produce sons that crush the enemy. That crush the enemy and have given up on their old way of life and are so holy with the king of kings that what they produce has no other aim other than to crush the king's enemy. The goal is that the bride is multiplied 10,000 times. The goal is that the bride produces offspring that defeat the enemies of the groom. Saints, are you the bride of Christ in this house? Well, this is what we're aiming at as a family and as a collective ministry. Who remembers what the sermon title was? Coins and camels. Let's get to the camels. 
It's our last vote, our very last verse. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went away. A bride and her accompanying party traveling on the ten camels that carry her through the desert into the groom. Coins and camels. Whether coins, servants, or camels. Do you see how Rebecca's carried to Isaac? This is the meaning of the supernatural help of a groom carrying the bride in the Nesween process. To be carried. You're not supposed to just be carried over the threshold, ladies. You're supposed to be carried through the process by the commands of the groom. And I'm not really talking to you ladies. I'm talking to us as the 10,000 members of the bride of Christ. His commands are the way that we prepare ourselves. The word is the way that we prepare ourselves. We have to become like him and he is in substance the word of God. Have you taken that seriously enough? Church, we're in a time of preparation and obedience to all ten coins, all ten servants, and being carried on all ten camels. That is the only way you will ever arrive at the marriage ceremony with the groom. It's the only way to get there. It doesn't matter if Billy Graham says it different or Joel Osteen says it different or some other person says it different. This is what the Bible actually teaches. If you've lost a coin, light your lamp. Sweep your house. Call all of your friends and tell them you lost the coin. And then tell them when you found it. I really want you to feel the anticipation though. Because the truth is, we have, we've emphasized the need to prepare yourself. Now for a second, imagine that you have. Nolan, imagine that you've spent every day growing in Christ. No area hidden. Imagine, Steve Thomas, that there is no area of your life that you know the Lord has addressed and you've just decided not to look in that direction. But you've asked for commands and they're carrying you into the perfected state. Imagine, Keith. I happen to know a young woman who has spent every day of her life being prepared to be Abigail. I want to call her to the stage for a minute and interview her. I want to ask her what it's like knowing that there's a young man out there that wants to marry her. Come up here, Abby. Knowing that she finished six months of school in two or three months, and did not cheat. The first Stevens in our whole family line yep. to have ever done that. Knowing that Abby has been sp spending every moment of every day preparing herself to follow a groom. Abby, would you be excited to meet him? Would you be fearful and groveling and snotting on the ground and worried he's going to punish you? No. That's because you've prepared, honey. 
I wonder what it would be like if a groom came through those doors. Abby, so you're probably wondering why I'm here. <laughs> I'm here to publicly declare before our friends and our family and our peers that you are the love of my life. The Lord has spoken to me that you are the one that I am to spend the rest of my life with. He first spoke this to me and gave me a promise five years ago when I was born again. Psalm 37, starting in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Abby, you are what my heart fully desires. And together, I commit to you today that we will serve him all the days of our life. We will trust in him. And as we delight in him, and as we are pliable in his hands, that he will fulfill his purpose for us. And that he will give us the desires of our heart that are his desires. In Romans chapter 4, Starting in verse 18. It says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and became the father of many nations. And just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old and Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver in unbelief regarding the promise of God. But he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. The Lord made it clear that, <laughs> obviously I wouldn't know how this would all look like or what it, how it would work out. But I knew that he told me that there was nothing I could do in my own strength to make this happen, but that he would be the one that would cause the promise to come. You are the promise that God has fulfilled in this way. 
and as we, in our marriage and for the rest of our lives, we will not weaken in faith. We will trust in him. We will take the promises and the things he gives to us. And we will trust that he will do it his way and that we will follow and obedience is no longer an option. Now, September 15th, 2019, you stood on this stage and preached with your brothers and your father. Full price. And you stood on this stage and you declared that before you would be given to a man, that you must be given to the king. Abby, you are a woman that is fully given over to Jesus. You belong to him. And just how God paid the full price for his bribe, I want to read to you his statements and his proposal from Exodus and what I will do for you. In Exodus 6, starting in verse 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out. Abby, I will bring you out from under the yoke of slavery. I will free you from being slaves. Abby, I will deliver you. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Abby, I will redeem you just as the Lord has redeemed his people with an outstretched arm. Abby, I will take you as my own people. And I will be yours. I will bring you into the land that the Lord has promised for his people. There is no one else for me. There is no one else. You are my one and only. You are my best friend. You are the easer that the Lord has brought to me. I will love you all of my days. You are more than what I have prayed for and could have ever imagined. I love you. So, with that being said, Abigail Faith Stevens, will you marry me? Yes. <laughs> yes. We're going to take, we're going to take a minute and pray. Uh, I'd like to clear this. Uh, oh, yes, please. Actually, all of our friends from Chicago, 
that have come in, please, please come down to the altar. Uh, elders and pastors of LCM, uh, please come down to the altar. Uh, we're going to pray for a minute, and this is LCM. But it's also the beginning of marriages between churches. Nick and Lindy Slaughter were at our house the day we brought home Abigail. And they're here on the day that she's pledged to become a Ledesma. Amen. <laughs> Abby, that ring happens to have been recrafted by your groom from the engagement rings of your grandmother and those that were before her. We're doing something that is ancient, but it is getting better with every iteration. So we're going to pray anyone that has the courage to prophesy can prophesy. I've brought these brothers down front because they would be the first to prophesy. If you have a burning word, you feel free to give it as long as you can look me in the eye afterwards and know that it was right. Amen. Father, we thank you for this couple. We thank you for your workings. We thank you for your union. We thank you for what is being born of you. We thank you for the willingness of a groom and the willingness of a bride. Father, we thank you that you will bring sons from this union that are better than their fathers. Lord, we thank you that this will be a bigger event than two people, but be about perpetual ministry through the generations and among churches. We thank you, mighty God, for all that you will bring from the Ledesma Union. I hear the Lord saying, Luke, I am bringing you out like a king. A king walking through his kingdom. I am bringing you out and unveiling the ministry, the work, and the calling that I have on your life as a king. You are a king walking through your city. And it will be a ministry of fire. Not a ministry of gentle words and quiet spirits. But a ministry of fire. I am bringing you out into the open to make war. Presenting you as I have presented myself before my people. Abigail, I see a vine, a sprawling vine that is green and is beautiful. And on the vine, I see three fruit that are untarnished and are uncut. And at the proper time, the gardener cuts them from the vine and they fall and they break on the ground and it waters the land. These grapes, these fruits water the land with their blood. And the father says to you, I will give you three descendants 
that will be untouched and perfect until the day that I cut them from the vine and their blood will water the land to which I send you. But it will purchase the land for you and your descendants forever. Hallelujah. Psalm 112 says, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. That is you, Luke Ledesma, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news because his heart is firm, trusting the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. And we thank you, God, for the adversaries that have been destroyed. Lord, through the man of God who is standing on this stage, who has said yes to your word, yes to your commands. Lord, for Abigail, the bride who's, be, who's been prepared, that sons will be raised from them, who overtake the adversaries that are against the Father. And we bless them in the name of Jesus. Micah 2.12, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. I want to declare to you the type of ministry that you will have, that God is bringing you together and has ordained this before either of you was born, and he will bring together the flock before you. He will bring people together for you, and that place will throng with a great crowd. The next verse says, the one who breaks open the way will go before them. Your mighty king has gone before you and has established this. He has broken open a way, not only of marriage, but of great ministry in your home. 
they, Luke and Abby, will break through the gate and go out with much favor and much success from the Lord. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at your head. He's declaring that he has and is going before you and that he will remain the king that is going before you at your head. Abby's. You are a delight. I want to read a little earlier in Genesis 24, starting in 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel, two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels. And he said, please tell me whose daughter you are. I'm here to say today, Abbeys, that your identity as a daughter is secure and that the Lord is placing you in a very secure house <laughs> and, and he is paving a way for you that we can't even imagine. Luke, you have your bride and the Lord has done this thing, amazing thing and the blessing arrives when we are able to witness the willingness and the wholeheartedness of the two of you giving yourselves to the process and letting the Lord make it happen. And, and I know that you are each dedicated to that. And you're going to land in a house that is beautiful and wonderful and perpetual in your names. It doesn't end. I love you. This is when Amasai came to David and the spirit clothed Amasai. And what did he say? The same thing that we're saying to you today. We are yours, Luke and Abby. We support you. May you greatly prosper. Indeed, may those who help you prosper. Indeed, your God helps you. So David accepted them and made them leaders of raiding bands. Luke and Abby, look around you. You see Men who will be leaders of raiding bands that will plunder the enemy's camp with you. And you see around you the army that will grow larger and larger. And the Lord will add to that number and they will help you plunder the enemy's camp. Know this, we are committed to you as ever. We are yours. We support you. We are here for you. We love you. It has been a treasure to watch you become radiant and beautiful, Abby. Beginning with a, th the, a 3D image of a sonogram. You were put on our first newsletter as a church. And it did something. It brought revival. It sparked revival in everyone who saw that image. as an image of hope and an image of life. And my, how's that life grown since then? Luke, I've, I've always uh, admired you. I admired you because you're a man with real masculinity. You never hesitated to have an honest conversation from the first day that you came down here. As we were beginning to pray, 
I hear the word firebrand. It's a, a burning stick, a zealous display of God's fervor. In my, how you two together are a firebrand. And this is how I begin to see the Lord show it. I see you touching different areas of land. Yeah, I'm going to make that specific. Amen. <laughs> but dry land, dry grass. And as your feet touch that land as a couple, it ignites in rapid fashion the fire of God in those lands. That as together, you will act as a weapon of war and a weapon of revival. It will burn away the chaff of sin and age-old uh, wickedness, and it will also bring about a fresh and fertile land for ministries and lives to grow from. Love you guys. Luke, Abby, would you all step down to the Ledesma family? Because, Abby, that will be your family. Would you guys gather around them? Justin, would you just pray for them and bless them? Lord God, you see what goes on in this place this morning. Lord God, we ask you right now, we all stand in witness to what you are doing, what you have been planning, Lord God, for this moment. And Lord God, in faith we declare, Father, that we support, Lord God, what you are doing now and in the future, Lord God. And Lord God, we pray right now for this precious couple, for the plans that you have before them, Lord God, for their family, for their relationship, for their ministry, Lord God, we Stand in the gap right now, Lord God. And we, Lord God, stand behind this couple and this family, Lord God, and what you are doing. And we say, Lord God, let your will be done in the name of the King of Kings. Lord God, we say, use this couple, Lord God, to smash ancient evil ways. Lord God, with the power of the heavenlies, Lord God, we declare it, Lord God, in the name of Jesus. Use this couple as a weapon in your hand to smash the the means of the enemy. Lord God, smash his head. Lord God, smash his plans. Lord God, with this with this couple, with this family in the name of Jesus, we stand united with your will. Bless them. Strengthen them. Encourage them, Lord God. Let your anointing reign over them, through them, in them, and everywhere they touch. Lord God, I pray your spirit would overflow and nourish people, nourish the land in the name of Jesus, and crush the head of the enemy in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we love you. Bless this couple in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So there's going to be months that we get to celebrate, but our service is not yet over. Worship team, we'd like to have you guys come to the stage. 
Church family, if y'all will crowd into the aisles, back to your seats, wherever you can. There is one more passage that we have to read. Because as much as this is a celebration, we want it to be a celebration for you on that day as well. Now that the surprise has taken place, we're going to reread part of Genesis 24. And they blessed Abigail and said to her, From the Stephen's household, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may the offspring of the Ledesmas possess the gate of those who hate him. The beautiful thing about the passage of this blessing is the initiation point of Rebecca being carried to the groom. She has to be carried on the commands of God to reach her destination. This is the state that every one of us are in. We've been betrothed to King Jesus. There is a blessing involved in it. But now we have to complete the journey. There's one passage that we want to conclude with you this morning as we enter into worship and you're contemplating the betrothal and the vow that you've made. It comes from Matthew 22, verse 11. So you'll recognize that what just happened is a betrothal. It's not the wedding. Not yet. The wedding will take place in October. You also have been betrothed. Your wedding will take place in Revelation 19. I shudder to say this, but I can only do it because I am absolutely confident that God picked this groom and absolutely confident of this bride's willingness to prepare herself. But let's back off of our joyous moment for just a second and contemplate. What would your heart feel to find out that two months from now, Abby did not take this engagement seriously? that she was actually secretly longing for someone else. Did that strike your heart yet? You are the betrothed bride. As much as I love Luke, and I really love Luke, He's but a shadow of Jesus himself. You are engaged to Jesus himself. 
and your engagement period says everything about how you actually feel about your broom. Matthew 22 is the story of a king who holds a wedding. And we're all on our feet, so I'm not going to read Matthew 22. I'm just going to read verses 11 through 14. But when the king came to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Invitations had gone out to this wedding, and yet the man showed up not properly prepared for the wedding. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The longer between the time of our first communion, which was our betrothal to Christ, and the fulfillment of the glorified body resurrected with Jesus, which is our wedding, the longer that time period, the longer you have to prepare for that day. He's not slow with some understand slowness. He's patient and he's leading you to repentance. Can you imagine looking the perfect son of God in the face? And you did not prepare your behavior like a wedding garment. You resented correction. You buried sin. You avoided accountability. You said, just don't look here. I'll be good enough. I've professed love so it'll all work out. No, you'll be found speechless on that day. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into darkness. If you love darkness now, doesn't matter that you're engaged. You will be cast out of the ceremony and into that darkness that you love right now. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now listen to the most frightening verse in the Bible. For many are called. You are all called. But few are chosen. In the context, it's many are engaged, but few actually arrive as the bride at the ceremony. This is a joyous day for me. It's a joyous day for you. But there is no greater joy than when a sinner repents. If you have lost a coin, if you've butchered a camel, if you've insulted one of the ten servants, light your lamp, sweep your house, and we will all rejoice with you when you get up from this altar. Father, we're asking now that your spirit of holiness 
would move in this room to purify your bride. We have promised, but only you can carry us. So Lord, we're asking you to interweave gold into our garment, for you to restore that which we tear, for you to help us find 